You are now listening to the Claim It podcast with me, your host, Trisha Huffman, your joyologist. On this podcast, I have conversations with people who intrigue and inspire me. I love getting into people's journey, their story, because I think it's easy to look at people and make up that it was easy for them, that they don't have struggles, that everything was a straight line, whatever it is we make up. And also to look behind what we see as successful enough, etc. And the reason the podcast is named Claim It is so, so often we are chasing those things. Success, the feeling of being worthy, the feeling of being enough, and looking for them outside of ourselves. And I feel that we can claim that at any time. Right now, you can claim that you are worthy, you are enough, you are successful. On today's episode, I have Alex Ebert, who you most likely know as being Edward Sharp of Edward Sharp and the Magnetic Zeros. We talk about his journey in how did he get into music, his first band, iRobot, and why that ended and where Edward Sharp came from, what his journey was with, you know, making it sort of as a successful musician, and all of that. I hope you enjoy. I like starting with getting into what was growing up like for you. Like, what was your life like growing up, and especially getting into like teenage years where I feel like there can start to be this internal and external pressure of like, what am I going to be with and what am I going to do with the rest of my life? Oh boy. Um, yeah. Uh, so I, I, I've been thinking a lot about this whole, um, what am I going to be? How do you find yourself? Who are you? Who is the real you? Um, and that's some sort of process that starts off as a lack. Obviously, the lack is implied. You clearly aren't yourself if you need to find yourself. And then once you find yourself, this is the this is the big doozy. Once you find yourself, then if you stray from yourself, you're no longer yourself. So once you find yourself, you have to stay yourself. And that is there's another word for that. That's called a brand. And we 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 sort of bind ourselves into these identities and then and then we base our notion of trust in one another based on how little the other fluctuates from them from themselves <laughs> so suddenly if you change if you're not the same you tomorrow i have no trust in you and likewise i feel like if i change um i'm going to be sort of disrupting the the equilibrium and and yet his like the history of wisdom up until 300 years, well, maybe up until 500 years ago, was that the self is sort of unknowable or the I contain multitudes like Walt Whitman or the idea that um, that form is emptiness and emptiness is form like the Buddha uh, idea or anatta, like the Hindu idea of soul and self, which contains all the multitudes of things that could be, that you could have done, that you will do. You're everything at once. You're, you're sort of the whole universe. And all of a sudden now it's like, 
you have to find yourself now stat like, and you got to find yourself by the time you're 20 and then go and then repeat that. And that's called success, a successful life, successful brand, successful business. You just keep going. You know, when you asked me, do I like to be called at the beginning before we started, I guess, uh, Alex or Alexander, what goes through my head is okay. Uh, well, first of all, I immediately sublimate like whatever it is that I would actually prefer with um, the conundrum of, well, how should people be thinking of me? Should I be Alex in their mind or should I be Alexander? Because that's very different. One is Alex and the other is Alexander. (laughs) And it's just like, why the fuck would this even be a thing in my mind? So yeah, the question is a a great one. And one that, you know, like is really deep. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's why now looking back, I start with that because it also feels kind of always feels humorous to me, but like, that's the reality. Hopefully it shifted some for people now, like for my kids already, I'm like, you don't have to I mean, in school as a two-year-old, their teachers are asking them what they want to be when they grow up already. And I'm like, what? But like, I'm like, you don't have to No, you're allowed to be many things and you can do this and this. I've been this and then I've been this and then been this. And now my kids say that to that. They'll be like, well, maybe I'll try this. Well, this because, you know, you used to be a sound engineer and now you write books and now and like whatever they think I do, which are things. But I'm like, exactly. Exactly. We don't have to pick one thing. We are many things. But it's just so funny that that's that's a real real thing, though. And especially in those teenage years, like, what am I going to do? What am I going to be? And I like starting there because it starts to shape how we have been. And yeah, what should I do? You You know, what's an interesting thing that just occurred to me for the first time, because usually children and society are lampooned with the following like mild data, which is that that kids now more than any other job title say that they want to be famous when they grow up um, or a YouTube star. That's the other thing. But and so, you know, and so that's really easy to sort of uh, make fun of and and show how sort of unsubstantial or whatever that is. But in a way, in the context of what we're talking about now, there's a possible silver lining to that because fame is any renowned for anything. And so, (laughs) you know, maybe, maybe there's some sort of tunnel in which, you know, the idea of just being renowned, I think the word fame is pretty dirty at this point, but being known for doing things um, may give us the leeway to sort of move laterally um, or to iterate on ourselves or whatever the case, but Obviously, our fixation on fame itself is is problematic. Um, But I also think that the fixation on finding the one thing that you do and that's your identity is problematic. So, yeah, exactly. But what were you thinking about your life when you were were young? (laughs) When I was young. So when I was a kid, um, you know, I was uh, I was immediately told that I was a bad kid Uh, at the age of three or maybe I was a little younger than three, but I was like uh, hitting kids at the park. And, uh, and so my parents put me in therapy and then they found out that my nanny was hitting me. And then they, they were like, Oh, well, he's probably just copying her. Um, So then I was out of therapy for like a year. And then at age five, I got put back in because in preschool or something or first grade, whatever that is, there was a new jungle gym. And they sat all the kids down and said, 
well, so this, we got a new jungle gym and uh, we need to show you the rules before you get on it. And I got up, I remember still getting up and facing the crowd and going, no, 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 no. Interrupting the teachers and saying, this is how you use it. And then just going and climbing it. And uh, I got sent to the principal's office right away. And my mom came and was like, if I put him in therapy again, um, will you let him stay? And they're like, okay, I guess so. And I basically was kept in therapy ever since then, constantly fucking up at school. This, this idea of being a cut up and a fuck up and uh, there was something wrong with me. I ended up recuperating into my own identity as we all, as a lot of us do as my power. So I was the clown, like I was the clown. I didn't give a fuck. Um, and that was my power. And so around the age of, you know, 14, 15, I was really deep in that. But I had just discovered also, um, I also truly like my analysis of school at that age <laughs> was that this was bullshit. There's a couple of things. This is a cool class this is a cool class and the rest I don't care about. And I'm going to act like it. And so I was always in trouble. My grades were shit. And then I found this uh, film class and I came home to my mom. I was like, have you ever heard of, um, have you ever heard of Charlie Chaplin? My mom's like, uh, yeah. I was like, he's amazing. <laughs> my mom was like, oh, thank God. He cares about something like he. <laughs> so she started, uh, she found me like this uh, film uh this guy who ended this guy who had these private film classes and I would do a whole bunch of extracurricular school after school. I would, I would like work on home videos. So I think that was my first sense of like, and also I had a rap group at the same time, tribal colors, me and this black kid, we thought we were going to shake up the whole world of race. Um, and, uh, and yeah, we had a, we had a rap group for a little while. So music and film, were the first moments where I was like, oh my God, I'm doing something like really obsessively. I didn't quite think of it as my identity yet or anything like that. I just love doing it. And um, yeah. And, uh, and I think that a lot of my life ended up in a way becoming about proving everybody wrong, um, which, you know, is interesting and, and generative, but also shitty and, um, and not, not something you want to have be your primary cause. <laughs> um, yeah. So, but it did, you know, like my dad telling me that I was, uh, not a scholar and that I needed to go to, uh, to learn a trade when I was like 14, he told me I should go to trade school. And I was so offended, um, for whatever reason, trade school is perfectly fucking awesome. But at the time I was just so offended because he, he was, very bluntly saying that I just wasn't smart. It wasn't like, oh, you're really amazing with your hands. It was like, you're not smart. So your hands are all you got. And I was really offended by that. And I think that a lot of what has driven me has been that up until recently. And then just recently, I've finally like been like working through that and letting some of that go. But so what what you feel like was has been driving you up until recently letting go was the like I'll show you or like being offended by your father or is that a combination same yeah I'm offended and I'll show you got it yeah <laughs> I got that I definitely moved through a lot of my life with the I'll show you 
and it made me do a lot of awesome things. <laughs> yeah. But I had to realize like, oh, I need the primary factor to be like, because I want to, because this is bringing me joy. It's, and it even was sometimes often the same thing, but shifting. Right. Right. Doing the same thing, but just with maybe a different energy yeah. Um, yeah. or a different degree of relaxation. Yeah. It's, um, it's funny, you know, it's, I'm, I'm not like a, everything happens for a reason kind of guy, but, um, but you know, in retrospect, everything happens for a reason. And you see these things that happen to us and, and then you see like, Oh, the, the, I wouldn't have maybe had quite the drive to read a bunch of fucking books and figure out X, Y, and Z if I hadn't been really offended <laughs> that, no, that, that, that my father thought I couldn't. And I think that that, you know, that's, a, that's something not to dismiss. And it's not something necessarily to intentional, you know, intentionalize. Like, okay, now I'm going to be mean to my kid so that she has a great life. Like, you know, it doesn't make any sense. But um, yeah. So when you found a film, it sounded like your mom was supportive. Was she just like happy mm -hmm. you were doing something that was engaging you? And like, you know, was that something that she nurtured, but your father was still like, or was he happy about that too? Or was he trying to steer you away and just be like, you need he a He didn't get happy trend? about, yeah, no, he didn't get happy about that for a while. But my mom was very supportive uh, about that, especially. Um, you know, I remember walking in on a conversation they were having because I was doing a lot of uh, rap music when I was like 13, 14. Uh, like I was taking it seriously enough that they were like, uh, my dad's like, do you think, or she said maybe to him, I can't remember who said to who, do you think this is actually something he could do? No. And that was the conversation I was like, walked in on. So they, you know, it, they were supportive, but they didn't necessarily, you know, believe. But I think when it came to like, movies and stuff and um you know which is less like uh catching lightning in a bottle you know being like a quote rock star is like good luck you know but making a movie is like you know there's a little bit more of a linear process like you do a b c d whatever yeah there's many um, roles on a movie and there's a ton of roles and it's sort of like a job as opposed to you know um yeah, like being in a band, which is um, obviously no nothing like a job and until it suddenly becomes one, which is interesting at that point, too. Yeah. So what? Yeah. When and how did you even was rapping your first introduction into like making music then? And where did. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was my I, for some reason, I just saw it's the power of visual rhetoric. But I saw a, a poster of uh, Run DMC. Uh, at my friend's house. It was huge. I didn't even really, I knew it was music somehow. I just knew what it was. I remember the name and I asked my mom to take me to Tower Records and I went in and bought Run DMC Tougher Than Leather cassette. And I played that thing. I memorized everything. I was one of those kids who like play, rewind, play, like writing, like memorizing all the words. And then very shortly after that started um, a rap group when I was like eight um, called Kabang. It was a gangster rap group. I was just really, I, I don't, you know, that was my, that was my favorite thing. I remember when Guns N' Roses came out, people were like, Guns N' Roses. I was like, what is Guns N' Roses? Like I had no idea about anything other than rap music until I was probably 14 and like finally heard like, you know, Bob Marley. 
Um, but until then, it was just my dad would play me cowboy music and and new age music on our road trips, and then rap music in my earphones. And those were my three influences. <laughs> and so then, yeah, like, uh, what happened? Like, did you end up graduating high school? And is there you must go to college? Did you then go? I'm gonna go do this with my life now. Like, yeah, I feel like that graduating high school can be a very pivotal time. Yeah, I wanted to go make movies. I, I I wanted to go make movies, but my grades were so shitty that like you know. And then and then honestly, I was so beguiled by the idea of hardship. Uh, now I recognize it as 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 struggle and sort of social asymmetry. Um, I I ran track and field when I was a kid, and um, and you know, uh, got to know, um, a group of kids, black kids, um, that were very different from the kids that I like hung out with in my little hippie ass, you know, private school, um, in that they had, they had this, they had this atmosphere about them that like, I just found so intriguing and they kind of took me into their world. And, you know, I like, the first girl I kissed was at one of their parties and like a spin the bottle. And um, there was just something about them that I felt like, oh, they're really living and I'm not. And all my friends are not. <laughs> and um, and and later, you know, and, and later I've sort of developed a theory of like my, you know, what that perception was about. But around the age of like 19 I loved meditating a lot. Um, and I felt like I was really like, there was something powerful there for me, but I also felt like I needed to really live. So my choice was to go be a monk in my head, like a hard, a hard life, like a, a sort of struggle monk life, like, you know, alone monkish or a heroin addict. Those were my two choices. And uh, cause I had already kind of dabbled a bunch with some, with some drugs and, um, and so I decided to be, I, I made a very, like, I remember the moment I was on Laurel Canyon Boulevard, I'm driving down the street and I was listening to Alan Watts tape and he's speaking all the spiritual stuff. I'm like, okay, what am I going to do? I'm going to make the choice. And I just decided to be uh, to manufacture hardship, uh, as, as, as heroin addiction. And, um, and so that's sort of where I was at. And so the movies thing fell away because it's impossible to be collaborative like that when you're on drugs. And uh, and music is a lot easier. And so I just started making music incessantly while being a drug addict and um, nearly dying and all of that. But that's what started this band. I'm a robot that I uh, that took up, you know, most of my 20s. And um, and so, yeah, so I manufactured hardship. That's where I was at. I felt like I'm, I'm an upper middle class white kid. I know nothing about life. Um, We've lost all of our death initiation practices as a culture. There's nothing to expose me to. Like, this is just too cushy. <laughs> and I'm, it's funny to be to say this stuff as if it's like, you know, people listening are like, oh, I guess that's maybe I should consider that. Um, because, you know, obviously there's that danger, but that is my story. Um, and I think I, I mentioned that not to promote the idea of drug use, but rather to promote the idea that we can't just focus on comfort. In my opinion, uh, the loss of the death initiation, which is really the life initiation, the loss of 
integrating death into our lives in a more fundamental, even celebratory way, like we do here in New Orleans, um, I think ends up stressing us the fuck out and making us feel like we're not actually, some of us feel like we're not actually living. And, and I think there's truth to that. Um, I like talking about this lately, but cancer cells are all defined or, you know, uh, characterized by their refusal of apoptosis, which is programmed cell death. Um, that's what a cancer cell is. It refuses to do the, you know, the normal regenerative processes that cells die and then are regenerated. Um, cancer cells refuse that process and instead self-replicate against the idea of apoptosis. And so they're trying to stay alive and then they eat up the host that they're living inside of. And likewise, of course, humans have been compared to a virus and we seem to be behaving almost identically to cancer. And could it possibly be that we have uh, decided to disintegrate the idea of death in our lives? And so to me, that's like one of my, that's one of my little, you know, it's terrible word, but crusades. Um, I think it's important. So at that time in your life, when you made the choice to get into heroin, I guess, uh, or yeah. make music, yeah. are you then living at home with your parents? Do you live on your own? Uh, Were you lucky okay. to have like your parents taking care of bills so that you could just oh yeah yeah, yeah. Like, no, I was I was I like to get in the realities like hey a kid can <laughs> it's a spoiled privilege rotten. to become an addict in some ways so. <laughs> oh absolutely to to uh, these these are pure white privilege um, or just straight privilege uh, problems um, I my grandfather on my mom's side I didn't get I'm sure my mom gave me money. But um, but my grandfather gave uh, after he died, I inherited a bunch of money. So there I was like, you know, and I spent all of it fairly quickly in my drug addled state um, and subsequent years. But um, so that's it, how you were but, able to choose. Yeah, yeah, I that funded, take drugs, make music. And yeah. I'm staying alive. Well, as and long I'm, as the drugs. <laughs> Yeah, as long as I don't overdose. And yeah, I was I was uh, I wasn't, um, you know, I wasn't like living lavishly, but that was also part of the point. The whole like, you know, I, I lived in a place with no insulation, no kitchen, shared bathroom. I didn't have a key. I had to use a ladder in an alleyway every day for four for two years. Um, but that was also like heaven on fucking earth for me. It was the most creative space I'd ever been in. And yeah, and I had this cushion, this, this trust fund um, from my, my grandfather um, to sort of like float me through that um, in a way that was like, you know, it's, 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 it's at once I'm manufacturing a, a, uh, a convenient hardship. And so I think that a lot of the, the hardships that we desire, the Goliaths that we desire to sort of, become heroes against are ones that, you know, are manageable, you know, like, uh, Oh, it was real. Oh, traffic. I was battling traffic. Oh, oh, good for you. You little hero battling traffic or, or, you know, I, in, I manufactured this hardship for myself. It was a pure uh, oppression of convenience. Um, and yeah, and I think that that's its own problem. And so how did, but that's Amarobit. That is, you formed a band or was that just you? 
that was uh, initially just me and then my friend and then my childhood friend, uh, Christian, who ended up also in Edward Sharp. So he's been with me forever. We've been rolling together. Uh, and then it was a band. And then it was a full band with, uh, and then it became like a little super band, a pre-inverted super band. A lot of the people that were in the band went on to, um, you know, just do amazing things. And so, yeah, it was a band for about six years, six or seven years. And what was that experience like, you know, because that is like, did you feel like, look, I showed you, like, I can do something. Like, that was the first Uh, taste of, like, doing something right (laughs) yeah i I don't know if i was yet in the i'll show you i was a full-blown i've always been like a head down worker so i I was very i was still very um like my work ethic through any through any and all of that stuff was very intense but i don't think i recognized it i don't know to what extent i don't think that i was like working uh to spite um you know, anyone at that stage yet. Um, I was still too sort of like, uh, life was still too new to me. I hadn't, I hadn't programmed any of that. And, uh, and in a large sense, the whole I'm a robot thing. And even as the name sort of indicates, like the whole I'm a robot thing was one big fuck you anyway. So as opposed to showing you, you know, I, I think, and I think that that's a lot of the, the, the trope of self-destruction anyway is like it's this recuperation of power where it's like if okay if i can't affect the outside world or i can't change the outside world i can you know i can't destroy the outside world i can um protest by destroying myself like a self-immolation in a way and so a, a lot of those years were sort of like this self-immolative um you know punk rock uh ironic um thing were you able to enjoy that process? Or were you also too in drugs the whole time that you don't? No, I had a really good time. No, because we were, there was just, it was, it was a total free for all. And I would also like pay for my friends and we'd go on crazy trips to, you know, whatever we saw, uh, Pulp Fiction. And then we said, oh, let's go to Amsterdam. And then we just bought tickets and we're like, Oh shit, we don't have passports. And, you know, we had just the best time over there running around and uh, life was kind of like this, um, this ridiculously fun, silly underground experience. And um, yeah, it was really, it was really great. Now it wasn't lost on me at all. I, I, uh, I loved it. And what brought the end of that project? Um success uh failed success so being on a major label you know all that shit i remember actually the first time i remember really writing songs out of spite um this this is the this is the turning point in my creative world um and something that like i'm still unpack like unraveling a manager came in we were we were like okay let's get signed by a label we're tired of doing this ourselves and uh, a, a big shot manager came in and, and saw us play and, and, and sat us down and said, OK, if you guys want to run with the big boys, you're going to have to pick it up 18 notches. Like 18 notches. Fuck you. 18. Not what the fuck are notches? Fuck you. I'm going home right now and I'm going to go write three straight up like pop songs. 
um, out of spite and just get this deal um, like tomorrow, you fucking asshole. And so I went home and literally in a week wrote the three songs that got us like this into this bidding war. They were a song on in on the first I'm a Robot album. One was called Alive, the other was called Dynamite, and then the other I can't remember. Well, the other was called uh, Scream, and um, and they're great songs. They're great pop songs. Um, but at that point and moving forward, I kind of opened a Pandora's box by uh, writing for the sake of someone other than my own muses, and. Um, extrapolate that over the course of four years on a major label. And I, at the end of that process had lost all sense of personal instinct. I felt, I felt like an actual robot. The prophecy had come true. I was a robot. And, um, and that's when I really was like, I, for the first time I, I, and I was sober at that point, I was like, actually pretty suicidal the, the the there was a lot of suicidal ideation i remember every time i would look at like beams um and trusses i would think like oh that's a good place to hang a rope you know like everything was like just morbid and i finally was just like i'm if i don't figure this out i'm just gonna i'm gonna kill myself so let me let me just think back to the last time i was actually free like when was the last time i actually felt none of this bullshit when was i free and i thought back 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 and then it was like oh when i was five years old like right around that same time when i got in trouble before i really thought i was a bad kid there was this music class and uh, we'd all bang on stuff and play stuff and sing out a key and i'm gonna pretend i'm a kid i'm just gonna pretend i'm that i didn't have any inspiration to do it i was like i guess i'll just i'll pretend i'll take inspiration from young me and I started just pretending I was a kid as I would walk down the street or be in the car, look around like I'm five years old. And all of a sudden, on the run, then one thing happened. And then I sat down to write a song with that in mind. I was like, I'm I'm just a kid. I don't know what a chorus is. I don't know what a verse is. I'm just playing music. And I wrote this song called uh, Bubble Boy. I think it was. It's got no chorus. It's just a string of music. And then some words. I still really love this song. And all of a sudden, uh, everything, it was like, it was like Voltron. It all just like the old me collapsed and I came through and I, we, I stopped doing, uh, you know, that was the last, we, we didn't do another I'm, I'm a Robot album on a major label. Um, we, I stopped everything. I broke up with my girlfriend. I got out of my house. I got rid of my cell phone. I had no internet. I stopped driving. People wanted to reach me. I put like a pad of paper on the wall. I mean, on the door in front of this apartment and you, with a pen and you could leave me a message. I was just starting to run out um, of all that inheritance. So life was suddenly now becoming more real in that sense. Um, and, um, and I started writing this music that was inspired by the, the, that, that lady with her guitar and all of us singing together in harmony. And that was the stuff that ended up being Edward Sharp. And, um, yeah, so that was that, that was that process. Wow. And so with, yeah, back to I'm a robot, you guys got the record deal and sort of like, then you become like 
what everybody thinks, like, it's sort of like in many ways, I don't know if it was everything that you want or thought it, but like, okay, let's do this then for real. And you get the record, you'll start touring, like all the things that people think are, oh my God, you did it. You're doing it. So good. But it was like killing your soul. <laughs> Is that what was happening? Or like, yeah. So, so, so that's, so there's a couple moments um, and I don't mean any offense to anybody who I've worked with that may hear this, but, uh, and I won't name names, but there were a couple moments of success that did kill me. And they were like very specific moments where I was like, I had a choice, uh, but it was like a democratic process and we could all vote like, Oh, what uh, producer do you want to, to work on this album? And I was like, um, well, I think this is like the, in, you know, the integrity choice over here. Yeah, but this guy's made a lot of hit albums. He's done a lot of things. I'm like, yeah, but that's not right. Okay, we'll vote on it. Now, I probably had veto power. I did, basically, but, you know, and I didn't use it. And I was like, okay. And I pulled over and cried on the side of the road as soon as I didn't think I was. I wasn't like, that's not like normally me. Because I knew I had just, I, I had this like Faustian, I was like, oh my God, I'm selling my soul. Like, this is a sellout moment. I'm like watching this slip away and just be eaten by the machine. And that, that basic, and that happened a couple of times. And, um, and yeah, it's like, you know, you, you start, you start making these moves that, uh, where the muses become less and you become less interested. It's, um. It's a shame. Yeah. It's a shame that, that we think that we can operationalize inspiration or that we must operationalize inspiration in this, in this way where we start thinking about it in terms of efficiency and, um, you know, and maximalizing uh, success. And it's just like, you know, there's this idea of, you know, we describe how forests grow as the trees competing for light. We describe everything as competition. Um, I have never heard that the forest is trees competing for light. No, people say that. Yeah, I mean, that, well, I mean, you know, that's definitely one lens you can look at the at the growth of <laughs> I trees. I definitely don't want to look at that lens. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, because, you know, they're like one grows this high, then the other has to match it and the other has to keep, you know, and they have to kind of keep reaching for the light. But you could see it as reaching or you could see it as competing. And and I just think this whole, so, you know, social Darwinist, this this idea of just the competition as the well, it's capitalism. That's the whole premise. Right. And um, and I don't know, I, I guess I'm just bringing that up to say that, like everything ends up in this world where it's like, well, if you don't, it's like a multipolar trap, they call it, where, where it's like, if you don't do it, someone else will, and they're doing it. It's like songs. Okay. So a good example. Songs these days are quote unquote louder than they were before because of a process called mastering, which takes the peaks and valleys of a song. So the waveform, and it raises the valleys more and more up toward the peak. So it's not that it's actually louder. It's just, louder more of the time 
So you have this loudness effect, but what it's doing is taking away all the dynamics of a song. So you no longer have like sort of a softer moment and then a louder moment, or like, you know, even just small dynamics within a couple seconds um, of the snare and the kick and the relationship. So now everything's just kind of this pancake, but you lose all of this life because life is dynamics. And I think we end up with the same, you know, trying to maximize, um, you know, our presence everywhere. Um, it's just, it's a hard, it's a hard thing, but once someone else does it, then you're like, well, their song's louder. And now it doesn't compete. That's the, that's the way they use it in in music. We need our song to compete with other songs. So you have to get your song mastered really loudly. And it's just like this fucking snowballed process. Um, you know, and if you listen to music today on the radio, it's like, you know, there's an interesting fact, the 10 most played, this was at least true five years ago, it's probably even more true now, the 10 most played songs on radio, terrestrial radio of all time, were made or were released in the last 10 years, meaning Elvis, Beatles, none of that has been played as much, none of those are in the top 10 of radio spins as songs that were released in the last 10 years, um, which is an astounding idea. Um, But it kind of speaks to the, it just kind of speaks to the idea that like everything is starting to sound the same and we're hearing the same things these days. Like when you make a song, you use these uh, triggers and samples. So every kick, like there's maybe 10 kicks that you ever hear in a song now. And like, eight snares, eight of the most popular snares, variations on it. And then everything's on a grid. So it's all click, 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 click. Everything is completely tempo mapped. And so we're, we're thinking we're getting all this variation. And in fact, everything's sort of flattening. And to be on the outside as a fan, it's like, yeah, but I'm having fun. But to be on the inside as an artist, imagine like that scene in star Wars where the two walls are coming closer and closer together and you're being compacted and you're like, Oh my God, I have less and less space to create. And I think that that's sort of what was happening to me. So for me, Edward Sharp was like this fuck professionalism, fuck all that. Um, We're going to be sloppy. We would have people come into the band that weren't musicians. We'd have people just, it was really fun. And I think that that was part of the Liberty of that. That's what, that's what got me out of that sort of I'm a robot um, funk that I was in because of the major label operation. It's Trisha bringing you a brief interruption to tell you about my new podcast partner and the product I am so excited about that I'm using right this moment. Organifi is a line of organic superfood blends that offer plant-based nutrition with high quality ingredients, less than three grams of sugar, and it's all powders that taste good that aren't too sweet, that are good for you, full of nutrients that you just put in your water and drink. The one I'm super into right now is the Organifi Red Juice. This is one I will have midday. I used this almost daily when I was working on my book because I love coffee but I do not do well with very much of it. So the afternoon for me is a no-no. So I would have a glass of Organifi red juice in my water 
and it would give me energy support, increase my energy, and it's all made with natural herbs, medicinal mushrooms, and antioxidants. Good for you, tastes good, feels like a little treat, super easy. They have so many different types of products. Well, they're all different powders, but for different things. Go check them out. And if you use my link, you will automatically get 15% off. It's Organifi.com backslash Trisha. That's O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I dot com backslash T-R-I-C-I-A. Go check them out. That'll automatically get you 15% out of Feel free to DM me if you have any questions because I've tried almost all of their products now, been using them for months, and I'm really into them. When going back to that moment that you described of like, you know, the, the producer example or whatever choice, and then when you left the like crying and realizing, do you also feel like what may have not led you to speak up to say, oh, no, but I really want this one. It's just like the fear of being seen as an asshole. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, like I so often I think that so often we don't yeah. stand up for like what we want or trust ourselves and go if we want because like, oh, we don't want to hurt other feelings or we don't want everybody to think, oh, you know, he's oh, yeah, you know, like start that thing. And then but then we're then carrying this resentment around that's like does this it's like we are afraid to make choices based on what we actually feel is best and true because we don't want to offend others or hurt yeah yeah i i had a a screenplay idea with a friend that was called the people pleasers um but yeah it you can end up in so much personal trouble spiritual trouble uh being afraid to upset people and you know and and this is going to actually be curious to see what you think about this, but, um, and granted, um, women have a, you know, a lock on, um, complaining about the egregiousness of, of like societal pressures to behave in a particular way. I do think way more pressure has been on women, uh, than men, but I relate so much to the complaints of women about, um, the idea of, oh, I feel like I, when I bump into some, like, I'm always having to say sorry. I'm always having to do this. I'm always feeling like I have to apologize. Like, I'm like, shit, that's me. <laughs> I feel like that too. You know, like, like I really do. Um, you know, uh, it's, it's sort of a, a ubiquitous um, experience, at least for me. I know, I know guys and some girls, mostly guys who don't seem to feel, who, who are like, yeah, like they just like their whole thing is to like take up space. That's like power to them. Um, and but, you know, it's like I don't want to be like that. So I so and, and, you know, I'm really into community, but there's this fine line between. So, for instance, just the problems with democracy and I'm a full blown democracy head. Um, I've, I've put a lot of my life into trying like democratize democracy, actually. But there are interesting problems with democracy. And that was a problem with democracy for me. I let it be put up to a vote. Now, I should have been the squeaky wheel that gets the grease in that case. Sometimes you're like, you know what? No, I know I'm right. I'm going to I'm going to fucking, you know, what do they call it on the on the Senate floor when they um, just stay there all day? You know, Um, God, I'm like brain dead right now. 
but yeah, and um, I wish I, I wish I would have done that. And I do think that those are, I did, I definitely, after that moment said to myself, I'm never going to allow a, a, a sort of feeling like that to, um, to just sort of fly. Um, and I don't think I've held true to that promise to myself, but I think I have done better. Yeah. Doing better. It's, it's a big promise because yeah, I mean, it's a bit, it's a really important thing, but it is a challenge because also, yeah, you don't want to, well, maybe they do know better. Well, maybe this and you know, this like constant, like, yeah, well, no, I feel this, but there's also this and weighing it out. But yeah, I think life proves to us over and over, like, okay, trust myself more. <laughs> okay, trust myself. More. But we don't always know. There are a lot of things to but learn. It's also, but it's also like the team player yeah. problem. It's like, okay, well, I'm going to, I'm going to be a, um, a team, uh, a team player. And it's, um, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's interesting. I do think there might be like a, a, a some sort of, I don't know, feminine and masculine thing there. It's a, there's an interesting story about the guys who came up with game theory. Um, and the idea that behind game theory, they were trying to figure out how to solve the problem of like nuclear war. And it's like, okay, well, since there's nuclear warheads, how do we create peace by using like nuclear war or the threat of nuclear war? And so this idea of game theory was like, um, you know, well, if they have this many missiles, then we need to have this many. And it's sort of like this game of chicken that never ends. And so you end up with peace. And the idea, the whole idea, though, is predicated on the idea that humans, um, when given a choice between cooperation and maybe slightly less benefit to them and then not cooperating and, and more benefit to them, humans will always choose to not cooperate, that that's the safer bet. But <laughs> they, gave the, they gave the test to their secretaries just to test it out because it's testing okay, positive. They're like, oh, okay. this is, this is <laughs> okay. working. This is working perfect. Um, humans don't want to collaborate at all. Men and, then it, yeah. <laughs> and then they gave it to their secretaries and none of it worked out. They all cooperated oh, and they're like, ah, it's some kind of anomaly. Wow. And they just, they wrote it off and they dismissed it. Um, so a lot of the premise of like how we behave and game theory is all based on this idea of like this warped idea. Yeah. I don't know. And I don't, not going to say, uh, if this is more a feminine thing, what I, in my own digging of, of like, and to the, in the apologizing, like I, I like have a, I call bullshit series and I did one last year. Like I call bullshit on all the apologizing Cause I've all, all have been someone to, Oh, sorry about that. Oh, sorry. I didn't reply right away. Well, sorry, whatever for me, what I saw that it's like, well, I'm making myself wrong when, you know, I'm saying I'm wrong basically, but it's really a self-worth struggle. Like it is more comfortable for me to like, you know, you to say, it's okay. You choose the producer than for me to stand strongly. And I really want yeah. this producer and like, it's okay for me to voice that, you know, and we can feel like, how dare I, does that mean I'm better than someone else or I'm doing this? But when I, what helps me get out of that is to see like, well, I can own that I have this worth and so do they. And by me stepping into that, I'm giving each person there the space to like, let's really talk about this honestly and not the bullshit should this, this, this direction. But like, what if we yeah. all open up the space of like, I am worthy of having this choice of saying this thing, of answering this email whenever I answered it and not apologizing because I didn't do it right away or whatever the thing is. So for me, I see it as a self-worth struggle. 
I feel you. And I guess, I guess that's up to each of us to be able to feel into that vibrate because we all kind of know what it feels like to feel empowered and to feel disempowered. And, and sometimes, you know, I guess when, I guess, I guess it's very possible that when I feel compelled to apologize, um, it's more distinctly based uh, in a sort of more like maybe a mild, like a status anxiety, social anxiety thing, as opposed to a disempowered place, but more just your basic, oh shit, I kind of let these people down by, oh, I'm late or I did this or whatever. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. But it's less like I'm disempowered. Sorry. And more like, um, don't be mad at yeah. me. <laughs> well, that, no, and I get that too. Um, so I'm not saying yeah. to never, sorry, but also a fun thing yeah. is to, to tr- choose like sometimes to try like, oh, thanks for your patience or thanks for waiting for me can give a different vibe than I'm sorry this. Cause like I fucked up, I late, I'm going to put that out sure, there. Of course. I'm yeah, not, yeah, you do whatever sure, you sure. do. These might, tips might not help you. I'm just, <laughs> yeah. whoever's listening. No, 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 I there, hear you. I, I think all that, I think all these rhetorical things are, are important though because they they carry they carry power so trying out trying out different you know techniques um sometimes i feel like um when i say thanks for your patience or something like that like i'm being um you know it's interesting for me because it it depends what the context of the relationship is but like um sometimes i feel like i'm in a position of of power in in some of my interactions where be it in music or and not in a position of like oh, i'm power but like no, you, know, you know people would feel like deference and um and because of that that's in a, that's almost embarrassing and so because of that i'll sort of maybe I, i'm just cognizant 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 of that so that if i show up as opposed to being like thanks for your patience because i know you would wait for me all day <laughs> i get that now you know what I'm saying? <laughs> you were very excited to book me on your podcast, I bet. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so anyway, because, yeah. no, that is the truth. But I was like, no, yeah, okay. but I'm like that with anybody. People have been late with me before and I'm just like, OK. Yeah. But, um, I, I've, I've now that I live in New Orleans and they call it New Orleans time. I, <laughs> I have an extra little excuse. I'm like, hey. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I'm also sharing tips for people out there listening that struggle with constantly apologizing. That also that it could be like, yeah, you could just be like, that's what you're doing and you want to make people feel comfortable. And like, I don't think it's bad to apologize. But yeah, if somebody is out there and you're constantly saying sorry, then it's that you telling yourself, I'm such a fuck up. I fucked up. I'm late. So it's like more like, yeah. what is that? What are you carrying on to that? It might not even have to do anything with me yeah. and how I'm receiving it or the other person. So yeah, like, you know, these things can live on us. Anyway, moving on, (laughs) moving Mm -hmm. on. So, yeah. So when you locked yourself away with a notepad outside your door and um, everything up, and that's how the Edward Sharp and the Magnetic Zeros came to be, when did you like start to like you did you how long were you in that space before you started to like let people in then? Because you said you like sort of gave up your phone, gave up everything like, oh. when did you know, like, this is a thing, not just like, let me be in touch with my five-year-old and see what's joy, but like, this is what I must, you know, be sharing or doing. Um, I sort of, I sort of knew the process. It, it was like similar to when I first started doing music. Uh, I was like 19. It's like, it was an incubation and then the songs kind of come together. And then suddenly I have a bunch of them and suddenly I'm like, oh, and I'm going to, 
I think this sounds like a, an album. This is a thing. And I started imagining it all. And I think once, once the imagination kicks in for me, um, when I can feel the atmosphere of the thing embodying the thing, I can feel the band. I can, I can see us traveling together. I can see us playing something together. Once I can start seeing it, then it starts to become, you know, a thing. And um, yeah, so it was, it was slow. Uh, but I was hanging out with uh, Jade, uh, who sings Home with me uh, a lot, and we were kind of on similar personal paths and uh, kind of, you know, in this liminal space and uh, running around and, and sort of liberating our spirits um, around L.A. And that time in L.A. was really special, actually. It was... Um, especially in Echo Park around 2005, 2006, 2007. It was like this, we're having some kind of weird renaissance um, there. So there were a lot of people kind of going through the same thing. Um, people were sort of like re-examining psychedelics in a, in a sort of more integral way and, and, and with integrity and doing like, you know, weird fucking moon dances for no reason and meditating in the park and, um, you know, walking around barefoot is not a good idea in LA, but doing it anyway. And it was just, it was an interesting resurgence of, um, essentially spirituality. Um, but like a psychedelic sort of like, you know, return and, um, yeah, anyway. And so how did, after <laughs> the experience with I'm a Robot, how did you approach when it got to the point of like, yeah, signing a record deal and getting, because it, that got much bigger, I'm guessing, right? That fan With uh, yeah. Edward Sharp, you mean? Um, so with Edward Sharp, I'd already had this sort of experience. Uh, so Heath Ledger was going to put out our first album, um, uh, we had met and he wanted to start a record label and we were going to be the first thing he put out. And um, so I was really excited about that because it was like a person that I know who's a friend who's really cool and like, like very relaxed, very creative, very artistic. Um, as opposed to like this machine and it was going to be a total indie label. And, I, and, and I knew some of the ropes and, and it would just be this fun, fuck you, unprofessional, like, like keeping the integrity of the children uh, playing music sort of thing. And then he, you know, uh, died uh, right as we were finishing the album. Um, and so uh yeah so instead of going to a label well we did we, we i basically started my own label uh bought a bus like nine thousand dollar bus on craigslist um and you know started a label in name and um and we just finished the album and um i don't know i just had real trust i just really felt like what we were doing was something the world fucking needed i needed earnestness and it was all it was all about this idea of a return to earnestness and and i just could tell that the world needed it and um you know this was before like some people are like oh you went from i'm a robot to edward sharp from a punk to a hippie you must be a fake 
You must have been trying to like just capitalize on something. Dude, if anyone looks at the actual era, there were no fucking monsters of men. There was no fucking Lumineers. There was no Mumford and Son. There was no folk pop scene. There was nothing in the folk pop. There was, there was, you know, you had like Devendra Banhart and some other folks, but they were doing their own thing. There wasn't like four on the floor, folk pop, like, like earnest singing shit. None of that was happening. There were no, hey, ding, 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 hey. You were like, let me just pick up on this trend. That's my next Yeah, let me just pick up on this thing. It was a full blown, like total, like uh, just spirit run. Um, And so, and, and yet, you know, we, we, I just had this real, real sense of it uh, being, what I wanted to do. And it was definitely a full blown gamble after Heath died. It was like, okay, well, you know, I'm going to spend the very last of my money. I remember in order to get the last of my money, it was about 50 grand to, to finish the, the album, put out the album ourselves. Um, and it was all that was left. Uh, the people managing the account were like, Hey, we have to block, uh, cut you off. I was like, what? Like, <laughs> Okay. And they're like, it's the last year money. You can't have it anymore. You've spent all through it. I said, look, I know what would happen if I lost this money. I would have to go work at like a restaurant or whatever. And I'm fine with that. Now that you know that I know that, don't you have to just give me the money? And they're like super, super upset and, uh, and, and sort of dismissive of me. They, they were like, okay, fine. Learn your, here you go. Go learn your lesson. And um, yeah, and I, I, I took that. We bought a bus, like I was saying, and we um, and we and we went on our merry way. Uh, we ended up teaming up with a small label called uh, with an indie label called Vagrant. Um, uh, and they were really great. So we were a co-label. They were a label with us and uh, they helped us put out the album. Yeah. I mean, you know, they really did a lot of the a lot of the work in the end. <laughs> Um, but to me, it was nice because I felt like I wasn't going to end up in the situation I did before. I was sort of felt like that was the master of my own destiny and they, they allowed me to sort of feel like that. And, um, yeah, it's been great. Awesome. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. I think it's easy to look at any artist musician out there and just think that like, these are powerful beings and they're doing everything that they want. And a lot is, but there's such, there's so many people involved and that it is very easy to get lost in the, oh, no, take this advice, do this. You want to do this to build this. You need this stability. Oh, and I have all these other people now employed by me. So maybe I need to make this choice because it's safer. That it is really actually easy to be living your biggest dream and be super successful and for it to like slowly become like not your dream or quickly. And there's a lot of people, especially for young. But I mean, old, I've seen it from behind the scenes because I yeah I was first a sound engineer and then the reason my role my title that came up as joyologist was because I saw that the people yeah that were touring around the world with thousands of people were unhappy I was like Mm. these people that are like everybody on earth is looking up to these people like wow look at them they're living their dream they're like they're living their biggest dreams have everything they want you'd think but it's still so much pressure and so many people in their heads and in their life trying to tell them what they should be doing or what's the best bet or what's the safe bet. So it's like, that's a really fucking hard thing to be 
a creative person, I feel like, in this world and stay committed to like that and to listening to yourself and to trusting yourself. Yeah, I think I think I've been really I think the thing I'm most grateful for, but it's also been my biggest struggle is um, is the thing coming back to the thing, you know, we were talking about at first, like, who are you? Okay, now I'm Edward Sharp. Now this is my now this is my thing, and now this is what's expected of me, and now this kind of music expected of me. That now this is what the people want. Now I'm a brand. Now it's not really about my muse; it's about a service, and that's cool. But it's just not what I'm interested in, and um, and that's okay, you know. And I think that you know the, the the people that want to you know hit on something and then duplicate it over and over again, that's okay too, because as long as it's serving some kind of purpose, um, that's what this fucking whole world's about, you know? But for me, um, I'm not happy. I end up in that non-joy place that you're describing when, when I become the product. I'd, I'd rather, I'd, and sometimes, so I need to, you know, blow it up and, um, and know that I can walk away and, experiment and live and uh, fail and all of that um, I think is important you know and and actually for me the, the key ingredients to whatever success means not in a capitalist sense but in the sense of like you know you feel fucking excited to be alive that's success exactly I mean that's the reason that podcast is named claim it is so often I find people are chasing I'll be enough when, I'll be successful when, I'll be fulfilled when, and it just like constantly ends up moving the goalposts, but you usually don't even feel it. It's like, well, what if you're so looking on success, what does that even feel like? Not what does that look like? What does that feel like? And that's what you're looking right. for. And maybe you can try to claim that for yourself today, <laughs> doing that some way. Right. You know, it's funny what what the imagination can do and the feelings that it can stir. But you can if you can imagine yourself and then feel it. Um, you know, someone was saying the other day I was just doing some studying. And it's like, um, you know, I got a great education at Stanford. Um, it was free, but it wasn't because I got a full scholarship. I just sat in on the classes, which I don't know if you know or not, but you can do that. You can get like a fucking top-notch education as long as you don't care about getting the uh you know the, the diploma at the end so what is education actually about is it if it's free is it about the education or is it about the diploma what the fuck is going on here and the same thing is is true with sort of you know joy and uh, and just life itself and that that sense of vitality um and the feeling the sense of like well if, if that's if you want to be something so that you can feel something and yet imagining being that something right now makes you feel that something. Why do you want to be that something? Exactly. <laughs> or it just helps you get clear on like, well, why am I doing that? Is it because then right. other people will see me as that? Exactly. So then exactly. I can like put that on my like resume. Hey, that doesn't matter. And I don't like it or like whatever. Right. Exactly. <laughs> Now, really, though, I mean, that's that's the question is like, why do we want to do those things? Ideally, those accomplishments are means and not an end. So ideally, those like any of those accomplishments, oh, well, I need to get the Ph.D. so that I can uh, X, Y and Z. And, um, you know, and I, I understand that that's the way society is set up. But if it's I need to get the Ph.D. so that I have the Ph.D. so that people know I have a Ph.D., 
you know, then then the 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 necessity with which we try and you know uh, claim those things, I think maybe diminishes. And what we what we can claim instead, as you're pointing out, is sort of the the feeling itself, uh, you know, and claiming it now. So yeah, I love yeah, that. That's funny. Actually, someone I had on a couple of weeks ago was a psychologist, or I might have used the wrong. I get all the terms. She did the one with extra, like she went to extra school to get the extra word. And she goes by a divorce doctor now. And I asked her like, oh, and so why did you end up doing like the PhD program or whatever? And then she was like, and I was like, I'm just wondering, like, if, it, if you are able to do the same thing, like, what was your motivation? And she was like, I'm just now seeing because it was like she grew up as Orthodox Jew and like that women were taught to not even like have they just like we have to send our kids to the high. She was like, you're right. I yeah. I have that degree just so I could say I have that degree because I was taught that my worth is in my accomplishment. She was like, yeah, I just now realized that. Thanks. <laughs> I was just like, oh, sorry. Oh, I, was, no. I was just like, wondering. you mean a psychoanalyst? I don't even... <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. I, yeah. But, or cognitive sciences. I mean, you know, I don't know. There's things you can do with knowledge. But yeah, I was just like wondering, yeah, like, does that do more for yeah. you by having that team? And she was like, yeah. no, I could still have done the same That's job. Funny. I just, yeah. I was taught that That's we, you need like, that means more about yeah. me if I have this title. Yeah. Anyway, so what um so is Edward Sharp and the magnetic zeros is that still part of? Yeah, we're making we're making an album oh, right now. Where I'm Yeah. Yeah, I I what I would like to do with that. So one of the things that uh drains me the most is actually touring. I love playing shows and all, but as soon as you start playing shows, then you're like, "Oh, there's another place here." It's basically it's a money grab. And it's something I wanted to try and avoid with Edward Sharp from the beginning. That's why I bought the the, the bus uh, myself. But then pretty soon after we started getting popular, the rest of the band's like, let's get a nice bus. Like, let's rent a bus instead, like a nice one. And then we had multiple buses. And I was, I was against renting a bus. I was like, no, we should have this shitty bus. Trust me, we should always have the shitty bus. We should just keep, we should live in the shitty bus. Like, this is the way. <laughs> But I couldn't convince them. They're like, it's unsafe. And when they brought that card out, I was like, okay, fine. But you live in this movable holiday inn. Everything is streamlined for efficiency. You're being shuffled from one show to another. And even if you're not, um, there's just there's just there's just something about the the fan rock star stage, uh, general admission division thing, all eyes on you. One, I like this whole thing that like has corrupted my fucking soul. Um, and I need a break from that. It's hard to describe, but basically I did the way I've been describing it lately is I used to be able to walk to the market, walk down the street, sun's hitting my face. The wind's blowing in a way. I hear the chirping of birds and I'm in my own cinema and I'm interacting with the universe. I see the universe and I'm with it. And I've lost that because now when I walk down the street, even if I'm by myself, I see me through the eyes of everything else, through the eyes of everyone else, even if they're not there. I don't have my own private relationship with the universe anymore. It's been corrupted by energetic eyeballs. And, um, and so while I can take a certain amount of that, 
doing, you know, shows in front of lots of people, it really compounds that effect. Um, it's like makes it hyper pronounced. It actually makes me sad just even talking about it because it's, yeah, I'm just, I, I, it doesn't resonate with me right now. So instead, I'm going to make a bunch of albums, put out a bunch of music for now. And then maybe one day when I, once I sort of deprogram myself enough, um, and maybe I can reapproach it with a different um, construction in mind, with something more like what I initially wanted to do, like playing, you know, uh, odd ball places and um, and creating different kinds of experiences that aren't necessarily this like, you know, broadcast uh, syndrome, but rather like cooperative or something. Yeah. I mean, I don't get it because I'm not you, but I understand because again, I ended up making a career out of supporting artists. Like I toured for a decade versus the senator and then went out and like, let me support these artists to enjoy the life that they created for themselves that they are no longer enjoying. <laughs> and so like to try yeah. to keep them, yeah, like loving what they were doing and seeing what, yeah, why is this hard? What is this challenge? Why do you not like doing interviews? Mm -hmm. How can we make it joyful that it can seem so glamorous and you do get that magical probably time on stage like you, i'm guessing you probably like the actual performing is my, magical my but favorite. all the elements like it's fucking exhausting yeah. to tour and then yeah you're like shuffled around and then you know you love that these people love your music but yeah then if they see yeah it's just it, it is an interesting yeah. thing with being there and people are so excited to see you and your music but then if they happen to see you in the town then yeah it's like you lose a bit of yourself of just trying to be in the moment and enjoy it i'm guessing yeah, it's all, and it's also just this metaphysical. Um, I I I have to write some. I probably write it down. But there's this metaphysical sort of like geometry where when you have you know sixty thousand of one and they're all pointing at one of something else, there's just some kind of psychic uh, effect that is uh, something that I still you know am like working on unraveling and um, and reclaiming my my own sort of relationship with the universe uh, in a way where i'm not looking at me acting but i am just acting i am just me being as opposed to me seeing me being and um it's sort of like a rewiring of my brain that occurred and i'm i'm just sort of in the process of dissolving it well i acknowledge you for like knowing that and where you are and then yeah like you can start to you can recreate it yeah you can that could look like yeah. you not touring for a while or you yeah creating shows in new orleans once a month or wherever it is right. like that's the thing too that i was always right. working with artists of so like you can make these choices that you have been taught like that's not how things are done that you right. get to recreate that. So that's awesome. Hit me up if you ever want more support and get clear yeah. on yeah, yeah. what we you can, want, uh, what you don't want. I'm <laughs> like, I'm really, I'm good at helping people sort through it all. Yeah, that's Okay, good. I'm going to get to the final things. First, I'm going to bring up an image of, I have a product line and these are phrases that go on keychains in my product line. And I ask each guest to not pick right. which phrase they like the most, but which one they feel like they need as a reminder right now. And why? Because if you want it, I will send you then the keychain. So, like, which one do you? I, I am. I am here now. I am here now. And why are you feeling that one? Um, I think that's a fun one. I think that that that's. I think that just the idea of grounding, um, and just being embodied, as opposed to sort of bypassed or in some kind of disembodied state, even if we contain multitudes, 
um, we're here now. And, um, and there's a certain eternalization of the moment um, that is important. And also, you know, to remind myself to not promise away the moment uh, to the future, but to really experience it for what it is now. Love that. Okay. What is something you do to raise your joy levels? Maybe you are not feeling so uh, good. <laughs> um, I, have, I have all kinds. I love cold showers. Um, uh, actually, ice baths, rather. I freeze all this ice in a drop freezer, and then I throw it in the tub and jump in. Um, roller skating, bicycling, especially around sunset, especially with my daughter. That shit is fun. Um, you know, probably the thing that I, I, I want to communicate the most though is, and it's going to sound really dumb and stupid and basic, but if you just pretend to have wonder, just pretend, just fake having wonder at, oh, what's this air? Oh, wow. What's this? Oh, look at this sky. Wow, that's interesting. And just pretend to wonder because you're a dead adult and you're completely, I'm completely dead inside as an adult. I've seen it all. I've done it. So you can't, you can't actually wonder. Just pretend you will actually start to wonder and you'll actually start to be filled with awe and your fucking life will change. We just, we get like for me anyway, I just get so dead inside. Everything is so... It's like, yeah, whoa, big deal, plant. It's like, dude, that's a fucking miracle. You know, like, like everything is a fucking miracle. And, uh, and I love being in that state of mind where I'm like, wow, everything is like, wow. And, um, and so I think, that, I, think that, I think that's one of my favorite things to do is to just kind of pretend to wonder, pretend to be a kid, skip, just like whatever. You know, they say that if you smile long enough and even if you're just faking it the um the muscles contract and actually you start spitting out like oxytocin you start like getting happy um which is hilarious i love that i'm a big proponent of want well, i'm about to say the wrong word <laughs> wander wonder whatever but yeah i like that your idea of like just try, if you if you are too cynical in the moment to do that like just pre try to pretend or yeah pretend you're a three-year-old yeah. that's discovering life for the first time like <laughs> Yeah, don't worry. You won't feel wonder. You're not in danger. We know you're super hip and like you're already and you know that. But just pretend and then watch what happens. Yeah. OK, I ask everybody to apply this phrase to their life. What is easiest for you is not always what is best for you. So it might be like a habit a way of being mm. what is easiest for me is blank. What is best for me is blank. And that doesn't have to mean it's harder. What is easiest for me? What is best for me? Um. What's easiest for me is to tell you what, uh, how you fucked up and what you did. What's best for me is to tell you how that made me feel. So good. Yeah. <laughs> I was actually, no, I have like a group coaching program. And today we talked about sort of that. And I was talking about communication where it is, if you can say like, if you can name how you're feeling and express that, that'll relate more because you have your like, you know, you're intimidating or you, you know, you are disrespectful. Like that won't land instead of like, I feel disrespected when this or I feel intimidated. Um, like, yeah, if we can like. <laughs> so what you're saying that I was like, oh, that was so great. It's powerful for ourselves to name the feeling. And 
takes a lot of courage too, because you know, it's kind of a vulnerable, like, Oh, you, you hurt me. It's like, you didn't hurt me. You're just a fucking asshole. And, uh, and that's what you should know. Right. Totally <laughs> different. You're an asshole. It's right, like, yeah. hurt me when you said that I was offended. Yeah. yeah it's big. Yeah. Love it. But it's transformative. <laughs> It is. Okay. The last question is the name of the podcast is Claim It, like I said earlier. And so I like to ask, what are you claiming for yourself right now? Um I think I'm claiming um ease. Um ease is like an exotic property to me. Not very familiar with it. Um I'm usually shuffling around thinking you know, fidgeting or meditating, unless I'm meditating or I'm on stage. If I'm in the zone, cool. But if I'm not, I'm thinking and fidgeting. And all of a sudden now I'm starting to claim my ease through the activities of the day. And part of what that has to do with for me is um, similar to the apology problem or the over-apologizing problem is understanding that the opinions of others, the actions of myself, the whole social apparatus um, is predicated on a completely antiquated reflex we have to avoid ostracization, to avoid being um, banished so that we don't shiver out in a freezing tundra. And today, we don't really have that tundra anymore. We're not going to die if we're totally alone. We're not going to die if someone rejects us. We're not going to die if we don't get the answer right. We're not going to die if the song doesn't reach number one. We're not going to die if we're lame or cool. We're, uh, we might die if we're cool, too cool. You know, then you're too, and you die of hypothermia. But we're just, we're okay. And things are what they are. And to just sort of claim the ease, like understand that for whatever reason, um, socially speaking, interpersonally speaking, um, I have, I don't have anything to worry about. Um, you know, the things to, to, that I have to worry about is that I'm, I'm, are, are other people's genuine oppressions. That's where I can pitch in. That's what I want to worry about. Where's my, how's my neighbor doing? Um, you know, to, to understand that I'm in a, like, I'm actually in a comfortable space. I have a home, I got food, <laughs> like my survival thing, like when they flare up because of a social interaction, that's a fucking illusion. That's like some completely ancient biological technology that is, all, that is redundant. And what I'm going to focus on when I want to get like stressed is how to help, um, you know, people who are actually like need the help. And, um, and so I'm just trying to live in that ease, you know, and that means like, that means, that means claiming that ease. If I leave you a voice message that's overly long and I sound like a dork at the end of it and I'm repeating myself, I'm not going to erase it. Uh, you just know that I'm like, okay, this is whatever. Um, you know, like, oh, I put out like a weird thing or I say something like, oh, you're going to diss me on social media. Cool. Like, I'll just like, I'll block you because that's not a problem for me or I won't because I don't care either way. I'm not, I got, it's not a problem, you know? And, um, and I think that 
I think that keeping ourselves right, right-minded like that is, uh, is fun. And I, and I like that ease, like going out into the sun and, and claiming the day and saying hello to the sun and like letting it hit my fucking skin instead of working all day or, or instead of going out there, and, you know, instead of all this efficiency, I'm in the big easy anyway, so I might as well. There you go. Awesome. I'm all for ease. That's something I regularly do, especially when I feel like I'm like, this is going to be too hard or stressful or whatever. Like, how can I approach this with ease? And jo- and right. <laughs> those are my two. I'm usually like, how can I approach this with ease and yeah, yeah. fun? Okay. <laughs> well, the ease is like, that's how we have the fun. Exactly. That's what I do before I go, go on stage. It's like you, you learn to relax. And as, as soon as you relax, you start having fun. I mean, that's why the social lubricants, we, we, you know, that's why alcohol even exists as a thing. You relax and then you have fun. So if we could just relax and we don't even need that alcohol, we just have some fun. Awesome. Everybody out there, claim some ease for yourself. <laughs> Thanks, uh, yeah. Alex. All right, y'all. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. All right. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. For show notes, go to yourdryologist.com backslash podcast. You'll find all the episodes there. To find more about Alex, you can find him on Instagram at Alex underscore Ebert. Um, See all the stuff that he is doing, talking about, sharing these days. And um, yeah, for all things me, yourdryologist.com. I'm at underscore Trisha Huffman at Claim It Podcast, at Your Joyologist, all me, and all things me at yourjoyologist.com. Again, I just want to remind you to claim your joy, claim your life, claim your worth, claim your value in the now. And I know that's easier than it sounds. It's actually like a constant thing. And I'm here to teach you how to do that, to share my tools, to help you see beyond your bullshit stories and the thoughts that bring you down. So hit me up if you're looking for some extra support. I have one-on-one coaching opportunities available. There's my daily inspiration app with hundreds of powerful thoughts and affirmations. It's called Own Your Awesome. My daily connection journal is an awesome tool that's available in my shop. Got all sorts of things to support you, empower you, and hopefully get you to love yourself more and show more up for your own awesome self and life because it's happening. Don't miss out on it.